welcome to the Education Roundup. Today we're going to talk about four topics. Addiction to exercise, using a family member as a translator, exploring thoughts of suicide and the microbiome. I'm Helen MacDonald, Head of Education at the BMJ and a GP. And I'm Kate Adlington, Clinical Editor at the BMJ and a Psychiatry Corps Trainee. Hi, I'm Sophie Cook. I'm a GP and UK Research Editor at the BMJ. So the first piece that we've got to discuss today is an article on addiction to exercise, which is a nice piece. It's authored um, by some, some folk we've worked with before, and they've actually written it together with somebody who has experienced addiction to exercise, which in, in my view has, has really helped the piece an awful lot. Um, Soph, let me come to you first. What, what did you make of this article? What did you find interesting? Well, I thought it was very interesting thinking about exercise from a different stance. So we're, we're taught, you know, a lot about asking people about the level of exercise they do, but most of the time that's to try and encourage them to do more. Yeah. And it made me realise that there is a subset of patients that I probably need to be questioning whether they're doing too much or not necessarily too much, but exercise that's, that's harming them in other ways. Um, and certainly I can think of probably a few patients I've seen in the past where this might have been appropriate for me to go down this route, but I've, I've not had the knowledge to do so. And a really interesting trigger, I think, certainly from a primary care point of view, is thinking about particularly patients who you've seen with some kind of injury, often related to sport, who you've then said, well, you, you know, you need to rest it. And they've become either slightly defensive or even angry or just mm. a bit agitated about you saying you can't exercise. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I've often followed up on those cues before, no, I agree. Quite probably, because I didn't really have a structure in my head of how I would do it. Um, but they've got some really nice questions in here, um, and which which you yeah, found helpful too. I do think they're really good. Um, because again, I, I don't think I would have known how to have gone down this route, even if I'd wanted to. And I suppose really, you know, the key point that I took away from this is that some people will exercise a lot. And that's not necessarily, it's not the amount that you're focusing on. It's the way that that impacts on their life and the other things that they're doing. And so even just that final question or the, the second to last question that they mentioned, which is how do you feel when you're unable to exercise or have to modify your exercise routine? That can probably tell you quite a lot mm. about their thoughts and their thinking behind things. And so I did find those quite helpful and that they might give me an avenue you know down yeah. which I could go there are some other useful ones around there so they suggested also you, you might ask um, about what motivates you to exercise mm. or what your current goals are um, how do you recognize when you've reached the limits of your body or, or if you feel unwell or injured um, how do you deal with that do you ever skip a session that that kind of thing mm. um, and then as you say working out how it fits with other aspects of their life because I mean certainly in the description which um, Catherine the author um, who was also the patient that's experienced this condition was describing um, it was really driving yeah. the whole of her life her social calendar her availability um, and, and really affecting her career and her friendships um, which seems really important to to find out. I think the other thing I found interesting as well was thinking about exercise. I've thought about exercise addiction and exercise as a problem in terms of eating disorders before, but this is actually talking about it in mm. isolation. Yeah. So I think that's something else that we need to be aware of, and that you don't necessarily have to have an eating component to go mm. with it. No. And it you, you know, this is this is a problem on its own sometimes. What are you going to say? Kate? I was going to say I think that was a really interesting no um, sort of point that they make quite early on in the article, but th about this difference between a primary and a secondary exercise 
exercise addiction. I think that's certainly something that maybe I've got caught up with in the past, thinking that perhaps one of a motivation might be around body image or weight loss. And actually, there's this idea that yes, in some people, um, you know, they define a secondary exercise addiction where you know weight loss might be the uh, aim but then there's this other group of people where that isn't the aim they describe as primary exercise addiction. and interestingly more men which yeah, I thought yeah. I thought was interesting they said often more more commonly with women it was it could be hooked into an eating disorder but mm. often more commonly with men it exists on its own yeah. um, which again might make it harder to spot mm. and particularly I thought of people who have been overweight or had weight difficulties in the past who have used exercise um, as part of getting themselves in shape and down to a healthy weight mm. um, and, and I maybe, thought how yeah. have you somehow instilled in them negative ideas mm. about yeah. Um, yeah. Um, exercise not in everybody obviously just in, in mm. a small minority yeah um, and I think the one of the things that they mention as well is this important distinction between exercise addiction um, and and how particularly in those people perhaps you, you know um, people who are particularly keen sports people maybe semi-professional sports people professional sports people and lots of those kind of definitions about how you know spending a large amount of time um, exercising or in their particular sport how how you kind of distinguish between those people where it is an addiction or or, or where it's kind of just uh, part of their um, you know a natural part of their pastime um, and I think it, they sort of talk about this idea about effect on life and effect on functioning. And I suppose for me, I was thinking about it, how you might conceptualise or think about other types of addiction. So certainly when we think about addiction to substances or alcohol, we think about um, primacy. So where you kind of pursue that, you know, exercise in this case, as opposed to kind of spending time on other interests in your life. Um, so I think kind of thinking about it like that in, in the way that we might conceptualise other addictions is quite useful as and well. And th- that concept was quite helpful in moving then towards how it was managed um, because what they seem to be describing, uh, aside from obviously talking to the person to to recognise that this might be a problem for them and, and for them thinking about whether they want to do something about it, um, was that what they were suggesting seemed along the lines of how you might with either drug or alcohol use think mm-hmm. about harm minimization. So mm-hmm. they weren't talking about, um, you know, totally cutting exercise abstinence. out of your life. Yeah, abstinence from <laughs> they exercise. They were talking yeah. about, um, you know, finding a way to use CBT and mm-hmm. things like um, sort of realistic goals mm-hmm. to try and reduce the amount of exercise that you were doing or mm-hmm. reduce the harm to yourself and your body as mm-hmm. a result of it, which I think was quite useful. Yeah, those kind of practical, thinking about practical smart goals, which you'd use, you know, you might use to think about how you get someone to do be doing more activity and exercise, but you could also use yeah. them to try and think about reducing, but absolutely not stopping completely. Because I suppose if you think of those people who get a bit edgy if you suggest that they totally stop exercising and rest a more productive way forwards would then be to think what you know to discuss with them what could they do if they couldn't stop totally what steps could they take um and how could you how could you help them with with constructive suggestions i suppose um to do that that article is called addiction to exercise and it's now available on bmj.com with its podcast And we'll finish with an extract from the podcast of Catherine Schreiber, patient and author of the piece, talking to us about her addiction. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I can remember a few times, I mean, when I, um, I had two herniated discs in my back and I was still running, uh, nearly every day. If not, I was on the elliptical machine. Um, I would go to the gym when I had a fever. Um, I remember at the time I, I was dating someone and they, and they came to the gym and they looked at me, I was on the elliptical, I had a fever and they say, they, they said, do you have a death wish? Can you go home? <laughs> So yeah, I, I that that rings home for me. Uh, that rings very true. Yes. And um, so the next article we've got um, is one in our What Your Patient Is Thinking series, authored by two sisters who came to the UK. One when she was around ten years old, who learnt pretty good English. Um, seems to be in essence fluent and became her family's translator Um, and she talks in this article um, alternately with her sister who arrived in her 20s and seemed to struggle to learn the language a little bit more um, and in particular um, expressing herself um, in healthcare setting. Um, Kate what did you think of this one? What did you learn? Well I, I really enjoyed this article and particularly it sort of made me reflect on quite sort of perhaps what might be quite simple or basic messages, but that actually perhaps kind of you, you might forget in this situation where you've got, you know, a couple of people in the room, you're kind of trying to think about the clinical message you want to get across. And maybe you might forget that actually, you know, who the patient is, that actually you should be, you know, ideally you'd want to introduce yourself to the patient first instead of maybe the translator. And then, again, just really basic things like even if the patient um, maybe isn't understanding everything that you're saying or or very little of what you're saying, still just by speaking slowly, kind of having good, you know, open body language, they might pick up on a little bit more than um, they would do if you're kind of speaking very quickly and directly at the translator. So yeah, those basic things, sort of speaking slowly, directing your conversation, if appropriate, to the patient. Um, And also, you know, as you would normally do, you'd normally check the patient's understanding, actually checking the translator's understanding of what you're saying, then that they actually kind of have the basic grasp of the clinical concepts that you're 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 trying to explain. So that then they have a better chance of explaining it on to the patient. Mm. So what did you think? Um, well, I think, yeah, Kate's points are really very um, important. And for me, I, I find these types of consultation quite challenging myself, you know, the three-way consultation with a translator, because you're sort of mindful of the fact that you're trying to direct things at the patient, but it's going through a third party. And I think this article does quite a nice job to sort of sum up what, you know, how we can how we can improve that. Um, I think in terms of just making sure you do direct things to the patients, speaking calmly and slowly is something which is recommended here. Sometimes, obviously, you know, you you want to be careful not to patronise patients as well and to sort of talk to them in a way which is appropriate, just taking into the the context of the situation, but um, ensuring that you're, you know, you're still asking the right questions and not overlooking things I suppose and I think the logistical aspect of, of not being able to, to speak English uh, you know well enough to book appointments is also something which I was reminded of in this mm. we see patients we say come back and see us but we don't always facilitate them you know rebooking or explaining to them how they can access and I think that's really important because those sorts of patients are more likely to get lost to follow up and there are things we can do as GPs to mm. facilitate and we probably shouldn't just rely on the administrative mm. staff it is something which we should probably take a bit of accountability for at as well. I think something I enjoyed about this piece was the fact that it was talking about a family translator because I think there's often an assumption that having a professional translator is somehow 
offering a better service yeah, um definitely. and it was really interesting to me and I, I know there are a number of pitfalls just to think that actually asking the person through whoever is there who they would actually like to translate for mm-hmm. them and who they feel comfortable with particularly in GP because you can note that on their record as, as a general rule then that on the whole they feel quite happy talking through a family member and this person certainly seemed to much prefer that approach I think the other interesting thing for me was thinking about how I start consultations and I would generally address a question to the patient, Mm -hmm. say, um, you know, why are you here today? And I sometimes feel a bit uneasy if that question isn't translated directly to the person then in front of you. And what this demonstrated to me was that actually they kind of knew that that's what you were going to ask anyway and they'd already done quite a lot of preparatory work about what they were going to say um so i think i might be tempted to ask when i saw family translators have you given any thought to what you wanted to say today um just to start explaining straight off which which might help um another interesting thing because this one of the women in this scenario had been translating since she was a child was thinking Mm. about the needs of child translators over and above adults so she talked about some quite scary sounding experiences where where she was trying to take a family member up to hospital um, and she got lost she didn't really know where she was she didn't have any money she didn't know how to get home Mm. Um, and you don't you don't necessarily think about the logistics of things like that a bit like you were saying with Mm. the appointments when you're when you're making a plan um, and it made me feel much more mindful of you know how you might leave a child lost in a hospital somewhere Mm -hmm. miles away from Mm -hmm. home with no idea how to get back Mm. and I suppose I mean they don't touch on it in this article but it did make me think about those situations which you do get often where there's a difference in opinion or um, you know between family member and a patient about kind of treatment goals or um or even about their understanding of their own symptoms or experience of their own symptoms and kind of how you would manage that in in a situation where someone's translating for their family member um uh i don't know i suppose it's they don't touch on in the article but it's always to bear in mind that what what the translator particularly when it's a family member, communicates you might not always completely reflect how, how the person is feeling. So just being conscious of that. And maybe just asking. Yeah. Is there a difference yeah, in absolutely. what you think compared to absolutely. to what the patient thinks? Because yeah. we'd like to know both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. The, another interesting point was about um, the level of understanding and speaking, that you might have a mismatch between the amount of English you can understand and the mm. amount of English you can express. Yeah. So it did make me wonder whether it would be helpful at the start of a consultation to talk about that, whether you wanted yeah. all of the questions to go via the translator and all of the answers to come via the translator, or do you want me to ask the questions mm. to you and you have a shot at answering, answering and you know yeah. they can pitch in if you get stuck. Yeah. There's probably a sliding scale yeah. of both, so it's not like you 100% use a translator or you 100% mm, don't yeah. that there's probably a whole grey zone in the middle yeah and it's going to be different for every person isn't it so actually making that part of the consultation just having that open discussion at the mm. beginning is probably yeah. quite a good a good bit of advice just to sort of open open that negotiation and discussion mm. about how they want it to go yeah. mm. um, which I have never done before I suppose no. you just make no I don't think I've ever done you, that before you know you you, you do 
you know what you've done before but yeah. it just gives a different framework that piece is called if your patient doesn't speak the same language as you and it's an article that's part of a series written and edited by patients which challenge doctors to think differently about their interactions with patients and they do come with a warning that they may feel uncomfortable to read but we hope that this is in a helpful way Our next article is Exploring Thoughts of Suicide. Yeah, and I edited this piece and it was really nice working actually together with Helen because I, as a psychiatry trainee, um, would be seeing patients presenting an A&E um, with thoughts of suicide and self-harm. And Helen, you obviously have experience of seeing patients like this in primary care. And I hope what we managed to do was to answer a lot of the questions that irrespective of the setting that you're doing this assessment on on suicide in, you can hopefully find some answers to common difficulties that you might have in this piece. Sophie, what did you think of this one? I found this a really useful article. I think it's very comprehensive and it gives a lot of good advice. Um, I was struck by, you know, as a GP, obviously we see patients like this and there is an expectation that everything can be dealt with in 10 minutes in the UK. But this, this, you know, does show how difficult this is to achieve in that time frame. And the framework is good, but I think we have to bear in mind that these patients will need more time and we might have to sort of be you know, see them multiple times and, and try and try and take things piecemeal, you know, and achieve one thing at a time in each consultation. I found the um, the assessment part was, was very interesting in terms of the way that the authors lay this out, thinking about the risk factors in terms of dynamic, static or stable. So we're all taught what the sort of, you know, the high risk things are to look out for but but what you don't really think about is what what as a GP is modifiable from your point of view yours and the patients and I think that's something really interesting because we often fixate on the things that we can't do anything about and you know that's that's not necessarily helpful it's probably better to think about what is dynamic and what can we do and and tackle those things first really um I found the questions very useful um, and I think that it would be interesting to hear from Kate's point of view what she thinks as a specialist or how she uses these questions um, because obviously she's seeing a different type of patient to the patients Mm. that we see in general practice so your patients probably would have already been assessed and deemed sort of necessary that they need specialist input so I just wonder Kate what about those questions what ones do you think are most important? Well I suppose I certainly in sort of second case we have the luxury of having an hour to Mm. go through or you know a full assessment like this. I know and and one of the things that they mention in the um, article is that you know it's useful don't you know not just to go in there straight away in the in the assessment that you kind of build up to it you build a rapport you Mm. and it's something that you kind of uh, you know ask about someone's functioning what's going on in their life their mood and you can build up to it but I appreciate in you know general practice you don't necessarily have the the luxury of that time but certainly what I find useful is starting to talk about someone's mood maybe how that's having an impact on their lives and then really sort of normalize in a sense and say you know it you're obviously having a very difficult time you know it would be very understandable and some people do find and that's what they mentioned in this article you know couching questions with that some people do find that when they're having these sorts of experience when they're feeling like this they might um they might find that they feel like life isn't worth living anymore and actually the interesting thing is that I think, and they mention this in the article, that often clinicians feel worried about asking these questions because by asking them, they're really going to upset the patient or even make them more likely to do something to harm themselves. But actually, there's there's absolutely no evidence for that. And sort of certainly in my experience, often you find people are 
you know not at all at all surprised to be asked that question particularly Mm -hmm. if it's something that they have been pondering a lot or quite relieved to be able to share some of those feelings um with you um Hersey, again, I, I agree with you. What I find really useful from the article is this kind of ability, to, the, sort of the emphasis on talking and exploring the protective risk mm. factors. So I think that's certainly something that's useful thinking about when someone, obviously you want to ask them what thought they, they've been having, getting kind of as much detail as possible about how maybe they've been having thoughts of harming themselves or or whether they've actually made specific plans. But then also thinking about well, what what, has stopped you so far you know what what are the things that have kind of made you think actually you know I I can carry on and part of the reason why that's really useful is is sometimes those things those protective risk factors so maybe family maybe a pet maybe whatever that that protective risk factors has somehow been gone quite recently so I think though that's the case where and they emphasize in the article that perhaps you might you you will start to be more worried because you've lost some of those protective risk factors um sort of recently and I think it's that getting that sense of what has changed has something changed recently what has changed and then having that really frank conversation you know involving the person the patient in that discussion so you know do, do you feel at more risk at the moment do you feel able to keep yourself safe at the moment um and and kind of involving them in that in that assessment and that conversation, I think, is really important. And I guess then moving into action, the the article is quite useful to help you decide as a clinician what is the decision that you're trying to make today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something you can often get lost in when you've got somebody who's really quite distressed, who may have a lot of things going on. Um, and there are a lot of questions to ask and you can end up almost with an overwhelming amount of yeah. information, some of which is concerning, some of which is maybe reassuring, but mm. it's then working out how you are going to work out what the clinical decision is today. Is the decision sitting in primary care, are you safe to go home? If mm. you're safe to go home, what do we need to do to keep you safe? Are you able to do that totally on your own? Yeah. Does that involve... Uh, other family members what follow-up do you need or are you thinking this person um, does not seem safe to go home I think we need to refer or I Mm. think we need to see you again later today or or whatever it is to to move the situation on definitely and knowing kind of what those different what different support mechanisms are there available to that person if they do leave so it's not you know so that they do they know themselves that okay the family are that your family are there as a source of support but if for any reason they aren't or they're not around well you you do have you know your local a and e that if these thoughts or feelings become much stronger you you can go there and there will be someone to talk to or um you know if locally you've got the a local sort of uh I don't know, crisis support line or i mean they mentioned samaritans in the article as well so i suppose making sure you've talked through all those different options with a person so that they know they're available if 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 things change and that's the thing is that these feelings are liable to change aren't they and and possibly quite quickly so have a look at that article on bmj.com exploring thoughts of suicide where you can also see and print off your clinic if you so wish a free infographic summary of the article summarizing some of the key questions the static and dynamic risk factors and also get some ideas for your management plans And finally, 
I'd like to talk about a piece on the role of the microbiome in human health and disease. Um, A random choice, you might think, for a clinical podcast. This is based on a huge, uh, more than 5,000 word article, um, clinical review online at bmj.com. And these articles are predominantly aimed for researchers, but we're trying a new project to extract the key messages um, for jobbing doctors. And you'll find these in a box in the main articles on bmj.com um, and we will take those and republish the um, main points only in the UK print edition. Um, so Kate, could you see any clinical relevance of the microbiome? Well, it's so the authors in the article obviously discuss the fact that this is something that isn't particularly um, taught or covered in um, medical school or medical teaching historically. And that was certainly the case for me. And I think um, I, I wouldn't have known very much about this. But I did actually, as it, hap- uh, as it happens, reading the article, it did feel reasonably clinically relevant because certainly quite recently in, in a previous job, um, we did. Uh, I was um, involved in the care of a person who was actually considered for a faecal transplantation um, because of recurrent um, C. diff. So actually, at that point, because I didn't know very much about the kind of um, theory behind the microbiome or even why faecal transplantation was done, I did a little bit of reading around it. Um, and it was interesting because it's echoed sort of in this article about the fact that certainly in recurrent C. diff, faecal transplantation is very can be very successful and have very high kind of um, so we'll just pause to say what it is first oh, sorry <laughs> so the human microbiome um for anyone who doesn't know is basically your microbiological communities that live in our bodies and our bodies so it's those two elements that make up your microbiome and in essence they can um this microbiome can do a lot of amazing things they can build things up or they can break things down they're responsible for lots of normal body processes and they can be involved in um, drug metabolism and it did seem reading the piece that c diff was one of the areas where its role is is perhaps most understood yeah or and i think perhaps most clinically known so we you know as doctors we understand that kind of long-term use of antibiotics can increase your risk of developing c diff that's one of the reasons um that's cited of sort of not using and particularly not using certain antibiotics which increases your risk and actually the reason for that is related to the microbiome in that um, sort of long-term use of antibiotics can disrupt your natural biome and it can cause sort of the overgrowth of certain pathological bacteria such as C. diff. So that's kind of one of the more commonly kind of known features of the microbiome in sort of clinical medicine. And because of that, they, um, one of the ways that people have looked at treating sort of um, C. diff that doesn't respond to a known antibiotics is by finding ways to kind of re um, uh, replenish a person's natural and indigenous microbiome. So the idea is that it gets disrupted by antibiotic use and they want to try and establish your sort of natural balance, as it were. And one of the ways it has been cited, and, and from the article, it, it suggests it's something that's been thought about actually for many years. I think it says that, you know, faecal transplants have actually been going on for for hundreds of years, but clinically it's been looked at and um, uh kind of research for certainly the last sort of 40 or so years um, is try and get that natural balance back by placing sort of healthy or feces from a healthy uh, person who's presumed to have sort of a normal sort of balanced microbiome back into the gut of someone who's affected by um, C. diff. Um, and it's been found to actually have really um, sort of positive uh, 
results and actually has been found to kind of cure um, C. diff, uh, recurrent C. diff infection in some cases. But I wonder whether its clinical applicability will be affected by how acceptable patients find it. So, um, I uh, yeah, certainly it's something that when you discuss with people, they kind of pull a face and a bit of disgust at the thought of kind of having someone else's feces implanted into their own um, into their own colon. But um, and it, away from fecal transplants, yeah. and <laughs> well, as much as I'd like to carry on talking about it, um, there are there are some other examples in there as well that you wouldn't necessarily mm. think of. I mean, in a way, you can see a very direct link between using antibiotics it disrupting the Mm. bacteria at least um, that are in your body and possibly getting overgrowth but they also talk about the role of the microbiome in some other diseases like uh, inflammatory bowel disease Mm. and also lung disease how the changes in bacteria for example that you see in cystic fibrosis might Mm. be affecting um, how your disease plays out Mm. and also Um, they mention in um sort of chronic sinusitis as well which is quite interesting that's certainly not something i'd considered before yeah we classically kind of maybe think about the gut but yeah this research seems to be into sort of lower and upper respiratory tract microbiome. so it's in part helping us to understand disease processes but also um i mentioned that it can be involved in how drugs are metabolized Mm. and dealt with and there are some drug targets and sort of therapeutic uh, ways in which the biome is anticipated um, to come into play for treatments for certain diseases some of which they list in the article Mm. so the example you were talking about Kate fecal transplantation Mm. um, is one of a general approach which in the article the authors describe as community replacement so you basically have a deficiency so you take something um someone else's feces which you're saying is normal and administer it to the patient another example um is altering your nutrition so redesigning somebody's diet in order to promote um beneficial microbial communities and function and they give an example of that being the FODMAP diet which is often used for IBS and exclusive enteral nutrition therapy for people with inflammatory bowel disease. And probiotics, so um, sort of drinks which include bacteria such as lactobacillus um, have been uh, recommended for a long while, particularly um, to help limit the development of antibiotic stasis diarrhoea and preventing again C. diff infection, as we mentioned before. So if our summary of that enormous article on bmj.com has inspired you to learn more about the human biome. Do go and take a look. We hope you enjoyed learning with us. All of the articles we've talked about today are now available on bmj.com. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Our full back catalogue is on SoundCloud. Google BMJ Talk Medicine to find it. That's all for now. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.